Welcome to The People's Lawyer, a podcast from the National Association of Attorneys General, the nonpartisan organization representing America's attorneys general. Attorneys general have a unique role as defenders of the public interest and often work collectively on nonpartisan issues that have a wide impact on people's daily lives. In our second season, we've invited attorneys general from different political parties to discuss how they work together in a bipartisan way to serve their constituents and protect the rule of law. In today's episode, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison and North Dakota Attorney General Wayne Stengem discuss prescription drug costs, pharmacy benefit managers, and competition in the agriculture industry. Well, generals, we're delighted to have you both on the podcast today, and I really want to thank you for, for taking the time to have these conversations. Um, it's, it's nice to see you both even over, over Zoom. I want to start actually talking a little bit about both of your backgrounds. Um, before you were elected attorney general in your states, you both served in legislative bodies. I know General Stengem, you served in both the North Dakota House and Senate for many, many years. Um, and General Ellison not only served in the Minnesota House, but also in the U.S. House of Representatives. So I'd love to talk a little bit about how being a lawmaker is different than serving as the chief legal officer of a state for listeners who maybe don't really even understand the difference in the in the roles. Um, I'd love to get your take on that. General Ellison, maybe do you want to kick that one off? Well, I can tell you that being uh, attorney general in Minnesota is more fun than being in Congress. I will, I will just state that from the beginning. But, uh, you know, being in the legislative body is important. And I think the experiences that I had before getting to the AG's office have really been helpful. Um, you know, understanding how the legislative process works, understanding how the bill writing process works. These things are all invaluable, you know, whether you're trying to interpret a statute or whether we're trying to get my colleagues, my former colleagues to, to, to do something or not do something. It's always kind of good to know, to have been in that experience. But I mean, in a, as a legislator, you're trying to listen to your district and you're trying to write the law in a way that makes people's lives a little better off. And as uh, AG, you've had to pretty much take the law as written, uh, usually. And uh, there are occasions where you get to argue to the to the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court that the law should be different um, or something like that. But those occasions are not nearly as rare. I'm uh, not nearly as common and, you, and quite a bit more rare. So, um, and but you have to enforce the law. I and mean, you got to be creative there too. And uh, and you got to listen to folks there too. Uh, but you know, one big difference is that in Congress, um, you need 218 people to do anything. And and, and in this job, um, you know, uh, I have to rely on my good conscience. After and I am constrained by what the law is and the uh, authority conferred by statutes and the Constitution. But after that, um, I check in with my staff, and if we think we can do something, we we do it. So there's a little bit more freedom and autonomy that way. Uh, and so those are just some of the main differences. This, I'm, I'm pretty happy at what I'm doing now. And I uh, got one more full year that I know I get. After that, we'll see what the voters think. General Stengem, what about you? Well, you know, I agree with everything that uh, General Ellison said. I enjoyed my 24 years in our legislature. I was four years in the House, 20 years in the Senate. I'm the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. That was invaluable for the service that I do now as uh, Attorney General because I have good relationships with the legislature. I understand the 
pressures that they're under and what it is that they do. And also I have a lot of friends who are there and that certainly helps now and, and has over the last 20 years that I've been attorney general. I represented a district which was bordered right up against uh, Minnesota. So it was a 20, 270 mile drive every week back and forth during the session. We only meet every other year for about four months. So there was that advantage and then go home and live under the law that we have. I always said being in the legislature, there's a lot to be said about uh, the safety of making decisions in large groups far away from home. And that's kind of how legislators, legislatures work as attorney general. Of course, you're one person. You're in charge, certainly, of, uh, of enforcing the law as the legislature has written it. But there's a lot of discussion that goes with that as well, certainly when it comes to consumer protection, law enforcement, some of the other issues that we'll, uh, I'm sure, be getting into. There is a lot of discretion that attorneys general have. And if you have bad, I always tell my legislator friends, if I have bad news, I just blame them. This is the law as it was written. Don't blame me. Don't kill the messenger. Uh, go in and change the law if you want to. That being said, there are some occasions where we have had to challenge the constitutionality of a statute that was passed. They're not all that happy when that happens, but uh, we all took an oath to support the same constitution. And after practicing law, I have a pretty good idea what our constitution, both nationally and in our state, say. Right. Yeah. So you talked about some of the many issues um, and areas that as attorney general, you, you have a lot more discretion. I want to talk about an issue that has been on a lot of people's minds over the last few years, and that's cybersecurity and, and data. Back in June, there was a bipartisan group of attorneys general who participated in a call with the White House leaders to talk about what AGs can do working with federal partners to combat the emerging cybersecurity threats that we've all been seeing. And General Stengem, you were part of that meeting, and you're also co-chair of a NAG committee that focuses on cybersecurity issues. Can you talk a little bit about the role that attorneys general play in fighting cybercrime and also addressing any sort of private and public sector cybersecurity issues? I sure can do that. You know, the, of course, the cybersecurity is an emerging issue, the ransomware issue that's gotten a lot of public attention. We contend with those things, but it also goes back a decade or more to all of the things we're seeing on the internet with the cyber scams that are taking advantage of our citizens. We're trying to get our arms around. One thing that unites all of us attorney generals, I think, or just about all of us, is our disdain for the robocalls that are exceedingly unpopular with our uh, constituents. The problem that we have is not that we, um, that we want to attempt to solve the problem. We certainly do. But these uh, operations are, are interstate. They are international in scope. And so finding the perpetrators is a very difficult thing to do. And then very often when we do eventually find one of them, we learn that they're in some country that where we don't have a strong extradition treaty and bringing them into justice is a difficult thing. The point my colleagues and I made with the White House and have made for some time now is that this is something the states can band together, but we really need to have the cooperation of the forces of the federal government because the Federal Trade Commission, the FBI, Homeland Security, all of those agencies are wrapped up in this problem. And if we're ever going to get a handle on it, we need to find where these people are, get them extradited into the U.S., or work with some of these companies as we have 
to find better ways of stopping the calls, the robocalls, the scam calls in the first place, going after the ransomware uh, perpetrators and the hackers so that we can find them and stop them in the first place because it is much easier to uh, deal with the situation before a problem arises than it is after our governments or our citizens, our consumers have become victims. General Ellison, anything to add on the cybersecurity issue? I think everything that uh, General Stengem said is spot on. I'll tell you that it is something that AGs have to really spend a lot of time thinking about, not only for the states that we represent and the people who operate in it, but also for our own purposes. I mean, uh, you know, AG offices can be targeted with malware and ransomware. And so we've got to be a lot more savvy than we have been. Uh, we've got to shape uh, not only the law, but we've got to even, in, I think we should require that, uh, you know, parties that, um, you know, in, engage in uh, uh, development of websites uh, and use public information and rely on the public to share information. I think they have a certain responsibility to help protect us from uh, cyber attacks and and be careful with information and also, uh, and also be careful with um with uh, how they uh, go about protecting the public interest since so many of them do exist uh, because of the public sharing inf- their information with them. So I, I'm happy about the, uh, the work that uh, General Stingham is helping to lead and glad to support him in doing that. Right. Um, well, I wanted to switch gears a little bit, um, talk about some work that a uh, bipartisan work of attorneys general recently specifically related to um, a, Request that you made to the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate anti-competitive practices within the meatpacking industry. I think this was last year in, in 2020. Um, General Stengem, what were your concerns um, in that request, and have there been any updates since last year? So it, it was not that long ago, and I'll bet this is true in Keith's state as well as mine, that just about every little town had a butcher shop, and there were people who were uh, adept at providing uh, meat for citizens who lived in the direct area. Those days are gone. We are seeing now that there are about four meat packers, be it poultry or beef or any of the other products, have really taken over the business and have our farmers and ranchers over a barrel. They have no choice but to whom to sell their meat. And the and the local meat packers, the local butchers are more or less gone. We suspect, at least uh, we think that there is a reason to believe that there are anti-competitive forces within the meatpacking industry that have served to the detriment of our of our ranchers. We have a lot of cattle uh, ranchers here in North Dakota and they are struggling. And there's always an excuse. There's the worker shortage that makes it tough for the, for the uh, meat packers to do business. So, you know, whatever it is, there's always an excuse. We think that there are problems going on. And so uh, all a group of us in, in North Dakota and Minnesota, other Montana, a lot of the uh, areas that are agricultural, have a lot of ranching, have banded together asking that the federal government uh, take a look into this. They have vast resources in the Federal Trade Commission and elsewhere to look at it. Not saying we want to turn the entire thing over to them. We're willing to work with them because every state has its own antitrust statutes. So we will continue the pressure on the Department of Justice to look into this. Uh, That was true in the last administration. I think it's true in this one. I think that as well, I think that there is some desire to take some action on it. I know too that Congress is 
looking at um, some options that they might have, and we need to keep up the pressure on them to do that. Prime example, as you mentioned, Allison, one of the areas where there's a lot of agreement among uh, attorneys general, certainly those of us from some of the more rural states, and this is a prime issue of, of one of those kinds of uh, uh, issues we can work together on. And General Ellison, are there other issues besides this, this meatpacking concern that General Stenja mentioned, um, other issues where antitrust uh, is, a, is a focus for you and your colleagues? Well, it should be a focus for, I think, everybody. I mean, it's one of the features of the modern economy that we see highly concentrated markets in so many aspects of American life. We all are familiar with uh, the high concentration in the tech world, uh, in the pharmaceutical world. But if you look at the ag area, which I think needs much more attention, you know, General Sengem's right. And there was a Senate hearing on concentration in the ag world. And I think that that's a good thing, but we need much more. But, you know, for example, the share of, of corn seed market that is controlled by four uh, the, the biggest biotech companies, uh, that, that has gone up in, in a dramatic way. You know, and uh, meanwhile, uh, we see uh, the increases in, in prices of corn and soybean seed, increasing uh, the, the yield that people get. We've also seen uh, market concentration in, in, other, in, in turkey and in chicken and pork and uh, four companies controlling entire markets and even in machinery. I mean, uh, I hear Minnesota farmers telling me that they'd like to be able to fix their own machines, but they cannot. Uh, and uh, you can look if you get if my I, I drive a 2009 Pontiac and if I want to go get somebody, if I want to fix it, I can. If you get a John Deere tractor, you can't and or you'll be breaking your warranty and you'll be in for a lot of trouble. I think, you know, you know, so the, the right to repair is a, a, another issue. And then, of course, it's not just ag stuff, but it's also stuff that affects, you know, uh, greater I mean, rural communities such as market concentration in healthcare uh, puts a lot of Minnesotans who live on the farm and live in rural communities in a position where they may have to drive, you know, an hour just to get um, to, to the doctor or to deliver a baby. And, you know, mental health, forget about it. I mean, you know, it's, they have to wait months and months to get uh, to see a psychiatrist. And, you know, uh, and, and so uh, these are and other charges. Also, I mean, uh, you know, you know, we, we're looking at uh, the uh, the telecom community, how many rural communities are in a situation where they, um, you know, uh, the, we're now living all on Zoom. The kids uh, have a tough time doing their homework because uh, they may not have a cable uh, or they may not have uh, a Wi-Fi access, may have to drive into town just to get a homework assignment done. All these things go back to market concentration. People pay money for uh, to, you know, for telecom services, they're not getting it. So it's, it, you can talk about meatpacking, but let's not talk, let's not forget about a whole bunch of other areas of life. I believe in competitive markets. I believe that the premise of a free market economy is that there would be competition. And whenever you have markets that are where three or four folks can just decide what the price is going to be, what it's not going to be, what the wages are going to be, uh, it's just very tough for small um, uh, entrepreneurs. We've lost about 700 dairy farmers in Minnesota in the last four or five years. And, and you know, I don't know too many Americans who are not one or two generations off the farm. 
my mother lived every day of her life on a farm in Louisiana until she was about uh, 20 years old. And she married my father. And they moved to Detroit, Michigan, which is a pretty big city at that time. But uh, she, but I'm a, I'm a, the child of a, of a farm kid. My father's, uh, his, he, he was born on a farm. My, my grandparents lived their whole lives on farm. And so you got um, all, you know, we, you have Americans who are, who are seeing a, a way of life just going away. Uh, and I, I think that it, 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 and that's okay if that's what the demands of free markets and efficiency and Lord knows not as many people work in agriculture as they used to for sure. But it's not, but, but we're talking about fairness here. You know, give the small grower and the small rancher a chance, right? And this means we need to enforce uh, antitrust rules. I couldn't have put that any better. I wish they'd been my same words about working on the on the farm because that's certainly probably maybe even more true here in North Dakota than even Minnesota. But nobody's far away from the from the agriculture community. We are all well aware of the challenge they had. We talked a little bit about the meat packing. The same thing is true of the dairy industry, which used to be robust here in North Dakota, practically doesn't exist at all. And it's largely because of the um, conglomeration of some of these companies. Uh, you touched uh, Keith on the on the issue with the high tech. Those are issues too, and 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 the really the bigger issue is that we need to assure that we have a robust free market system. That is where innovation happens. That's where products can get better. That's where prices can become lower. And when we see some of those concentrations that violate our antitrust laws, we need to make sure that we do something about it. I'm sure, Allison, you're going to get into the PBM issue, and I hope you do because that. General Ellison started to talk about healthcare, you know, the challenges of rising costs of healthcare through consolidation, but I wanted to talk specifically about prescription drug costs. In an episode earlier this season, I talked to Generals Peterson and Tong about the just drug pricing issue in general. And I know this is an issue that you're very passionate about, both of you, but um, General Ellison in particular, I wanted to get a little information from you about what your office is doing on, on the drug pricing issues that many, many Americans are facing. Well, you know, PBMs are part of the overall conversation that we need to have about drug prices. Uh, PBMs, you know, just for folks just for who may not be familiar, the PBMs means pharmacy benefit managers. These are companies that are supposed to administer the prescription drug programs of health insurance plans. You know, they've been around for a few years and they really were supposed to help squeeze out unnecessary costs. I believe today that they play actually a role in making costs greater than they should be. They, they uh, are uh, in a position where they can determine not only what medications people can access, but also how much patients and pharmacies and healthcare plans can pay for those drugs. PBMs are adding substantial costs to the healthcare system rather than saving that money, which was their original purpose. The way they do it is that they um, are simply in a position to be that middleman or middle person. They offer a lot of things like, you know, coupons and other things like that, where if you buy uh, from them uh, or if you engage with them, they'll offer you these benefits that they don't offer other people. So then now you get in the area of price discrimination. Uh, and what we really feel is critical that, you know, we there be regulation of uh, PBMs so that they're transparent, that they really are giving uh, good good value, 
uh, and that uh, they they are fair to independent drugstores, uh, and that uh, you know they um, and so and so there you go. Now states have taken action and passed legislation to try to regulate them, make them more transparent, more cost effective, make them play the role that they originally said they were going to play. And in some cases, like I believe in North Dakota, where the state legislature has passed laws to allow for regulation, the industry has fought back. And uh, many of uh, uh, in, in states have stood up for uh, the regulation and the statutes that states have, uh, have passed. And uh, so, you know, I believe, um, you know, PBMs, uh, you know, uh, need regulation. I believe the statutes that we, the state legislatures have passed to uh, make them comply with what their original purpose is are, are good laws. Uh, and uh, yet at the same time, um, these matters continue to be, to be litigated. And uh, there's, there was some, you know, recent litigation, uh, I mean, Supreme Court decisions, uh, you know, in Rutledge versus uh, Pharmaceutical Care Management Association uh, that stems from Arkansas, uh, law where Arkansas states a legislature passed a law regulating PBMs, um, and in which uh, you know the uh, the Supreme Court found that uh, PB, that uh, regulating PBMs was not subject to federal preemption. Now that's great because it means the states uh, can can take some action that they need. It means states can regulate PBMs no matter what kind of health insurance plan or who regulated it, that's a good thing. I'm very happy about that. But I believe you asked me generally about what, I'm, what are we doing about pharmaceutical pricing? You know, we're a part of uh, several lawsuits, uh, many of, uh, you know, uh, and they're different. One of them is out of Connecticut where General Tong is leading a lawsuit suing generic drug manufacturers who we can prove through their, um, their online chats and in text messages and emails that they were, they were dividing up the market and refusing to compete. That's not legal. So that's going on. We're doing that. We got into litigation around in the price of insulin. And one of the things that I did, and, and I think uh, that uh, Wayne could uh, talk to this too, is that when you're the AG, you can convene people to have a conversation. We actually pulled together a group of, 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 of doctors, professionals, pharmacists, university folks, industry people and ordinary citizens. And we pulled together a, a document um, where we came up with a number of, of, of suggestions, where we, uh, where we came up with a report, which I will put in the chat and encourage people to download. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and, and the bottom line is, you know, this idea of people affording their drugs, I think is one of the most important things that we can do. There's no way that we, that folks should not be able to afford, say, insulin, for example. I mean, just, you all probably know this, but, you know, uh, when, uh, when Dr. Jonas Salk came up with the polio vaccine, they said, are you gonna patent that? He said, well, you might as well patent the win. That was his attitude. And then when it comes to insulin, you know, the, the, the folks in University of Toronto who came up with it, they, they, sold, the, they sold the patent to, uh, to University of Toronto for like two or three dollars, and and or like and, and so because they wanted people to be able to uh, to get access to these life saving medicines. Now, uh, sadly, and I don't. By the way, I am okay with people getting a fair profit. 
I'm okay with uh, companies recouping the investments that they make. But I think that uh, in some cases, it's just a matter of, you know, this is, these people need this to live, uh, how much you're willing to pay. And sadly, uh, people ration the medicines and we've had people die as a result of uh, uh, like cutting their dosages and just, just can't go on this way. I want to uh, thank Keith in just a moment when we talk about our PBM uh, legislation and litigation here. This was a law that we passed in 2017 and it was passed by a wide margin by our legislature because they were not happy with the prescription uh, benefit managers. They are entirely opaque. They claim that everything that they do is proprietary and nobody has a right to know anything about what it is that they are doing and how much money they are pocketing. And so we passed a law here in, in North Dakota in 2017. We got sued. Um, our district court upheld this, largely upheld the statute, but we went to the Eighth Circuit and um, they overturned the ruling of our district judge. Um, and uh, and declared illegal and preempted by ERISA, by the federal law, um, and and that there was nothing they could do about it. Then Leslie Rutledge, an attorney, the Attorney General of Arkansas, was at the same time going up to the Supreme Court. She won in the Supreme Court. We were very happy about that. Based on that, now our case has been sent back down to the Eighth Circuit. Keith and his uh, and his staff have uh, rounded together a very big group of supporters. Uh, I think we have 33 or 34 states, including the District of Columbia, who joined in this amicus brief, recognizing that the PBMs really need, and they really owe the, the consumers of America some transparency so that we can know if they're, what is happening and what can we do to help reduce the cost. And, and part of what we're concerned about here is, and I think you touched on this, Keith, is that this has been to the detriment of the local pharmacies, the small pharmacies that people rely on to get good, solid uh, medical information and are intent, in many cases, forcing uh, uh, patients, customers to go online, even whether they want to or not. And that is, and that is a real concern that our pharmacy association here in North Dakota had. So thanks Keith for, all, for an excellent amicus brief uh, and for rounding up so many people to join in. You guys are awesome, man. We're in this thing together, and thank you for leading the way. For, for sharing all about that, particularly the case in the amicus brief, because it, it highlights one of the last topics I wanted to talk about with, with you both, and that is collaboration among the attorney general community, particularly, obviously, bipartisan collaboration, but on, on many, many issues, and we've, we've talked about a few of them here today. I'd love to just hear more from both of you about your relationships with other attorneys general and how they help you be successful in, in your role in serving the constituents of, of each of your states. Um, the amicus brief is one example of that bipartisan work. We talked about some NAG committee work um, and other antitrust group efforts. So you're both smiling. We People can't see that, but I'd, I'd love to get some stories from both of you because um, General Stendrum, you've been in the AG community for a very long time, and I'm sure you can tell lots of stories about that kind of collaboration. And, and, and it goes back to, Allison, to my days in the legislature. You know, North Dakota is kind of uh, a fairly bright red state at this point, but that was not always the case. It certainly wasn't the case in the last quarter of uh, last century um, uh, from the uh, until up until 2000. Our entire congressional delegation was, were Democrats and our legislature flipped back and forth from time to time. And I served in the majority and I served in the minority. Um, and I can tell you that if you really want to accomplish anything, the first thing you better do is learn to work across 
party lines. We certainly have seen a lot of lack of civility on the federal level, and I think that's a sad situation where you can't reach across the aisle anymore because you face enormous political consequences just for compromising or, or just trying to uh, work out what's best for your constituents. There's a lot less of that in the attorney general world. We touched on a few here, the meatpacking, the C, uh, PBMs, uh, the cyber crimes, the, uh, the robocalls, all of those things. There are so many things that are going on. We're all collaborating. We're working together. We understand what it is that we're trying to do. We, yes, we have different political philosophies in many instances, but that doesn't mean that our colleagues have to be enemies or people that we don't like. There are, I've now been doing this, of course, for 21 years. And a lot of the people of both parties are my very good friends. I like them and I'm always happy to see them. And I certainly understand. And maybe as lawyers, that's something that we get better than most. You can go into court and argue a position with somebody without creating an enemy every time that you do that, as long as you understand that people's motives are good, you may have different philosophies, but where they want to go, their motives, what it is they have in mind for their constituents, all are by and large, with few exceptions, uh, for the for the betterment of their own states and communities. Yeah, I agree with Wayne on that. I mean, the bottom line is that there's no Republican uh, insulin. There's no Democratic um I don't know, T-bone steaks, right? They, 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 what we have is people who have needs and, and we got to meet them. And, and, and uh, you know, it, we often find uh, when people call our offices, when people call the AG's office in North Dakota and they call the AG's office in Minnesota, they're not calling for pop. They're calling because they got a problem and they need some help. Now, if, if, if Wayne and I both get eight or nine calls or five or six calls about the same actor, we might open up a file and say, uh, we're going to do something about this. And so you see, it really is, it, it's not really a highly politicized thing. You know, uh, you know, if, if you're, if you're, if your um, telecom service is not working, it ain't working. And you need somebody to do something about it. You're like, I paid my bill, but man, I'm this, this thing's not working. So, We've got to figure out a way to get that done. So that gives us a chance to really kind of solve problems. So, for example, some of the tele, some of the um, the big tech stuff comes out of out of Texas, and I think Wayne would agree that our colleague Ken Paxton is pretty solid conservative. Would you Would you not agree? <laughs> Nobody does that. So my point is that you know, and we and you know, we stuff coming out of D.C. Folks will join on that. So you know, and, and then the opioid crisis. We've heard, we've sat down with families who have lost loved ones, brokenhearted grandparents who are raising their grandkids because their kids might have gotten a car accident, started using uh, Oxy, graduated to something much worse, die. I mean, it, these kind of things will break your heart. And if you let some political nonsense get in the way of your ac action, then shame on you. You know, so... No, we don't always agree on everything, and that's fine. That's politics. You can't take the politics out of politics. But as long as we, but we're committed to solving people's problems, and so that keeps us straight. Plus, the other thing is, when when Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy sit down at a table, both of them know that somebody or the other one 
is going to be the Speaker of the House next term. They directly are competing for seats. We're not directly competing for seats. I'd vote for Wayne if I was in North Dakota, but they, that's a crime. They don't allow me to do that. You can't vote in the state you don't live in. So, I mean, so we, we, it gives us sort of the luxury of just focusing on problems because we're not competing head to head like some of our congressional colleagues and even some of our state legislative colleagues are. This is, and can I just make one additional? Yeah, please. This is something that is especially beneficial to states like North Dakota and, and our collaboration, our efforts, you know, going back to tobacco and now working on high tech and working to the opioid crisis, but just about all of us are engaged in the advantage to a small state like North Dakota, whose consumer protection division is rather small or antitrust division is rather small. Minnesota probably, uh, it was certainly bigger, not a whole lot bigger though. And that's why it is especially significant that we can all band together uh, and join, join forces and our resources can multiply and we can take after things like the tobacco companies and opioid, uh, the opioid epidemic, doing something that really only attorneys general could have done. That's right. That's right. And only by working together. It's, it's wonderful to hear you talk about that. That's been a theme for many of the um, other interviews we've done this season. And it's, I think, helpful for listeners to understand, I think, what you said, General Stengem, that you're friends with many of your AG colleagues. And it, you know, it, when you're friends, you can you can see eye to eye on the on the issues where you're able to just focus on solving the problem, like General Ellison said. Uh, and it, it's nice to see that. It's It's been a shame we haven't been able to do too much in person, but I think um, the relationships remain. Well, they do. And the collaboration and in-person meeting is really a significant thing. And that's why we're all looking forward to the day when we don't, it's fine to do it uh, over electronic means. But really, you establish good personal relationship by sitting down, visiting and dining together and just getting to know each other. And I'm hoping we can get back to that before long. We look forward to, to hosting you both and all of your colleagues from across the country uh, as soon as we can and, and many future NAG meetings. Um, I want to thank you both for your time. I know you're very, very busy, and um, I think I've learned a lot today, and I know our listeners will will understand some of these issues a lot better now. So thank you very much, and and I hope you're all uh, you know doing really well. Take good care, General. Yeah, you too, Keith. Good to see you, and we'll see you uh, before long. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The People's Lawyer. We look forward to bringing you additional insights about the nonpartisan work of America's 56 state and territory attorneys general in future episodes. In the meantime, you can learn more at naag.org or email podcast at nag.org.